everybody else who's left, if you have your Bibles, open to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to um, get through the first few verses of this chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's some on the sides of the tech booth back there. You can um, go grab that and borrow it if you need to borrow it. It is our gift to you if you need to have it. So uh, feel free to just take it with you. Uh, when I graduated from um, school and Jenny, was, my wife, was still in graduate school, I had the privilege of being a, a teacher at a private high school. I taught Bible, and um, as part of the Bible teacher thing that you do, um, the, the first few minutes of class were always, we'd stand up, we'd like, take, roll, check, 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 here, here, here. And then it was, hey, does anybody have any prayer requests today? And, you know, people would raise their hands, pray for Aunt Sally, and pray for this, and pray for that. Pray for my test in math, because I didn't study. Good luck with that, you know, that kind of thing. Um, th there was one point, and I, I did, I, I, I really racked my brain to try to remember exactly what it was. And I think I've got it right, but I, I may be wrong. And so, so... Somebody in the back, raise your hand. Yes, yes. What can we pray for you about? Uh, well, I need you to pray for my pet lizard. No, I'm not going to pray for that. I mean, like, there's some things that came up every so often where I'm like, if you had a cute puppy dog, maybe cats, no. Lizard, no. -uh. <laughs> not happening. Snake, definitely not. So I. I mean, there was just some things, right? You kind of hit that. Thing. And, and it was so awkward looking at that going, mm, mm, no, mm, mm. oh, I forgot to pray for that. You know, that kind of thing. And, and it, this text that we're going to read here in just a second, it reminded me of that kind of emotional gut level response because there were some real challenges for me in here about prayer. And there are some things in here that, that I think God's going to unfold for us where I'm like, it feels a little bit like praying for the lizard. There is, thankfully, a single word in here that saved me from praying for reptiles. But um, I, I, want, I, just, I set that up to say there's some stuff in here, and if you get conflicted, just know that you're, you and I are in the same boat on this deal. So in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to read the first seven verses together. First of all, then, and when he says first of all, he's not making a list. He's saying this is of utmost importance. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For, or because, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, uh, men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, this message, this testimony, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The way that I want to get at this text today is try to build a sentence. And we're going to take it kind of phrase by phrase, but I wanted to hopefully get this sentence stuck in your head a little bit. The first phrase uh, that I want to put in your mind is this. We offer all kinds of prayer. You see that in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for um, all men or all people. We offer all kinds of prayer. Now, when Paul, and he does this pretty regularly when you read uh, his writings, uh, when Paul crams a bunch of words like right together, boom, ba-boom, 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 you know, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving, when he's doing that, He's trying to make a collective push here. Uh, 
he's not so much saying, we'll look at it this way, but he's not so much saying, hey, this is the kind of prayer you need to pray, and this is the kind of prayer you need to do. But he's, he's just trying to encourage us, even exhort us to pray. That's the main thing. So he's piling up these words so that we get the idea, oh, this must be an important thing to pray. What he says about prayer is also important, but the main thrust is we're supposed to be people who make all sorts of prayer. We offer all kinds of prayer. Here's the four words that he uses. The first word is supplications. I urge that supplications. Supplications is a, um, it goes a little bit like this. Uh, I see a scenario. I see a situation. I see a circumstance. um, I see something on the news, whatever, and instead of just groaning or throwing up in my mouth because it's so disgusting and the revulsion is so high of what I see happening, I go, oh, no, 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 no. It's not just my body that's going to react to this. It's also going to be my soul. God, you see this. You got to do something about that. Whatever that is over there, you got to do about that. That's a supplication. It's putting something before God to say, hey, 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 do do you, hey, you got this? You notice this? That's supplication. The second word that he uses is prayers. It is a much more generalized kind of word used all throughout the New Testament, most popular word used for prayer in the New Testament. Um, And it, it, it basically means kind of setting something before God. There's a great illustration of this in 2 Kings, uh, about the verse 19 or so. Um, Hezekiah, the king of Judah, um, gets a, a letter from Sennacherib, the evil bad guy in the scene. Uh, he, he's kind of the, 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 you know, he's the guy in the black hat. Um, he, he sends this letter, hey, don't you think, don't ever think that God's going to save you. He's forsaken you, blah, 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 blah. He's going through all this stuff. Uh, and Hezekiah does what I just think is perfect. Maybe we should do this with the emails that come in or the doctor's reports or whatever. He, he takes this letter, literally the piece of letter, and he goes to the temple where he's going to worship, and he sets it before the Lord. He just lays the letter out. It says he spreads the letter out in the presence of the Lord. Like, there you go, God. Anybody ever feel like that? Where you've just got something, and all you know to do is to take that and go, hey, God, uh, this is too much for me. There you go. I don't even know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to respond. I don't know how to feel. I don't know how to act. I don't know how to think. All I know is that this letter, this form, this thing, this whatever, I, I, I need to put it before you. That's what he says about prayer, supplications, and then prayers. Um, the, the third part often comes when we take that thing and we, we set it before God. So supplications are, God, do you see this going on over here? Prayers are something like, here, God, this is happening in my life. You do something with that. And then oftentimes as we do that, we have these um, intercessions, these, these things that we're um, concerned with. So we set this before God and then all of a sudden we think, yeah, so what I'd really like you to do, as I'm sitting here thinking about this, this thing is before you, God. What I really want you to do is, to, so here, here, God, my marriage is a wreck, and so I'm setting it before you. And now as I'm thinking about it, what I'd really like for you to do is, I mean, this part, this part she has to own, but boy, this part, this part's mine. And uh, I need to repent of that, and I need to change that, and I need to shut my mouth there, and on and on and on. God, here's my kid. (laughs) I'm putting him before you. He's a little too much like his father right there, so I'm going to own that part. And these intercessions, 
become very detailed, very specific things in the lives of the people or in the circumstances that we're setting before God. Supplications. God, you see that over there. Prayers. Here, God, I'm giving this to you. Intercessions. Oh, God, now that I've given it to you, I see some stuff that I need to talk to you specifically about. The word intercession, it's kind of a cool word. It, it, it literally means a, a conference with God, like Oh, my three o'clock's here. You better show up for that one, right? I mean, it's a little bit like that. God, we got to talk about this. Uh, and then the last one, and we always do this. I mean, you, got, you, you have to have this. It's Thanksgivings. Why in the world do you include Thanksgivings in a situation like Because, A, God heard you, and B, he, he's oftentimes the only one who can do something about it. So we give him our Thanksgivings supplications. God, it's over there, and you got to do some prayers. Here it is, Lord. You do something like this. Intercessions. Now that I'm thinking about it, I need to do that, and thanksgivings. But they together, don't miss this point. As much as the detail is interesting, don't miss this point. Together, though, they form this kind of force that pulls us toward you must pray. We make prayer. We offer prayer for all kinds, all kinds of prayer, all kinds. The second part of this little phrase here is that we offer all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people, for all kinds of people. So he says, first of all, of first importance, then verse one, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for those that we like. Is that what it says? Uh, those that we're in agreement with. Those who look like us, who think like us, who live close to us. For all kinds of people. That's what it says. For all kinds of people. Now, just to be clear, he, he is not saying all people. I mean, you think your prayer list is wrong, long right now. Just imagine if you added all 7 billion people in the world to it. It'd be pretty, you can't obey that command. So what he's really talking about contextually is all kinds of people. All kinds of people. This is the part, and this is the part that spared me from praying for reptiles because it says make prayer for all people. Thank you very much. I'm grateful for that. This is the part that got me stirred up, though. This is the part that this week kind of like, ooh, 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 ooh. because um, there are people that I don't necessarily want to pray for. You got anybody like that? Either because of their influence in my life or their um, authority over my life or because of their particular sin, I don't want to pray for those people. Now, I've got my own sin over here. I'll pray for the people like me. Because we're all fellow strugglers, right? But those people do that stuff, and I, I'm not good with that. I'll just give you a very brief example. This is just straight out of my own life and out of my own heart. When I see on the news people who hurt kids, I'm like, oh, no, no, no. And so this week, I'm reading this, prayer for all kinds of people, and I'm like, I ain't praying for them. I'll pray for them. Get them. That's what I'm going to pray. Get them. You know, that's what I want. Right. And that's how I, that's kind of the thing that wells up inside of me. And all of a sudden Paul tells Timothy and God tells Trent, we make all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. How about you? You have a particular class of people that you don't want to pray for because of their particular sin. We could start naming some if we need to. Or you've got a particular group of people because of the influence on, their, on your life or, or whatever. You know, I'm not going to pray for them. Is there a group of people that you would not pray for? And if so, Paul looks at you and the Holy Spirit commands you all kinds of prayer 
for all kinds of people. He uses two particular examples. This passage is sandwiched between these two particular examples. I just give you these two. One is those who are spiritually struggling. Can we back up a few verses to the very end of chapter 1? Look at verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you wage the good warfare. So let's just be real clear about something. How do we wage good warfare in these days? By praying. That's what we do. That's how we wage good warfare is by praying. Verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, faith and a good conscience, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom, and then Paul names names, are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they would learn, that they may learn not to blaspheme. You've got these spiritual strugglers. We don't know what's happening with Hymenaeus and Alexander. We know that they um, were claiming to be Christians and living uh, the, the, the exact opposite. When someone claims the mantle of Christianity, claims the name of Jesus over their life, says they're a Christian, but continually and unrepentantly lives opposite of that, the church at some point gets involved and says, oh, no, you can't say you're this and live like that. That's not okay. And so you remove them, if you will, from the fellowship. That is the, that is the hardest thing and the worst thing that a church could do is to remove this kind of umbrella of protection over them and say, okay, God, we're handing them over, and all we know to do is go there. Just may they learn what they need to learn out there. And I'll give you a great example of this. The prodigal son, what is the, in the story in Luke 15, what does the guy end up doing? He, the poor little boy ends up slopping pigs. Now for a Jewish boy to slop pigs, this is not a good thing. What happened? He was turned over. He was handed over so that he could finally get jarred so radically that he would come to his senses. They're spiritual strugglers. Um, when uh, these people are hard to pray for because uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, they, they don't listen to you. You sit down across the cup of coffee or lunch or whatever, and you're like, hey, man, no, you cannot do this. You cannot do this. As a pastor, as you can imagine, sometimes you get into these conversations on a reasonably regular basis, and you sit down with them at some point, at some setting, and you say, you cannot do this. I know how this story ends. I've walked this. I've lived it. I've seen it. I've, I've experienced this. I've watched it in too many people. You can't do this. It will end in a very different place than what you thought. Well, it's just me and my computer screen. That always ends in a very different place than you thought. Hey, listen, my anger's not affecting anybody but me and the person I'm angry at. Anger always ends up in a different spot than you think that it does. Well, you've got this other thing in your, I mean, I, I can handle it. I can handle it. I'm just putting it right here. You cannot handle it. This is the whole point. This is why we're having this conversation. It always ends up in a different spot. Listen to me. Spiritual strugglers, I mean, this is the frustrating part. And one of the reasons why it's hard to pray for these people is because they don't listen. You ever been at that point where all you want to do is reach across the table and just grab them by the neck? Do the Darth Vader thing. I find your lack of faith disturbing. I mean, like, ugh. they also don't care. And so you pour out your heart to them, and they're like, eh, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Thanks for lunch. Those are hard people to pray for. But my guess is you and I both have people in our lives. All kinds of prayer for all kinds of people, spiritual strugglers. The second kind that he mentions is at the end uh, of, excuse me, 
is in verse 2. Uh, and it's these secular authorities. So he says, pray for these spiritual strugglers like Hymenaeus and Alexander, folks who are making a, well, and just pause here. They're making a wreck of their lives. And oftentimes what happens in a wreck, it's not just you who goes down, right? It's not just you who's affected, not just you who ends up hurt. It's all, there's other people always involved. Verse, that's not just spiritual strugglers, also secular authorities. Verse 2, for kings, make prayers for all these kinds of people, for kings and all who have high positions, who are in high positions, that we may, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We make prayer for all kinds, all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people, including these secular authorities. So you think about, you know, presidents and vice presidents and senate and house and, you know, you just kind of run down the list all the way down, right? This is who God t- commands us, calls us to pray for. Uh, and this isn't just for those that we agree with, who see the world your way, who, you know, make the promises that you like. Uh, this is not just for them, um, it, nor is it for the people that we vote for, just that we vote for. We don't pray for just the people that we vote. We, we get to pray for all of them, all of the kings, all of the rulers in high. Th- this became particularly clear for me as I'm sitting here and I'm doing a little historical work, trying to get the mindset of Paul in this moment. Paul is writing from jail to Timothy, and he's writing um, in the, the mid-60s uh, A.D., so 63, 64, 65, so kind of somewhere right in there. Any guesses? Any guesses as to who the emperor is in 63, 64, 65, right in there? Anybody? 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 Just say it out loud. Nero. Anybody heard of that fellow before? Not only is he cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, but he is one bad dude. He's the guy who crucified Christians and then lit up the crosses so he could throw parties at night. Paul says, pray for this guy. This became particularly poignant to me as I'm sitting here thinking he's writing from jail about a guy who's crucifying and lighting up Christians so he can throw parties at night in this garden That's a little different, isn't it? These kind of secular authorities. The, the point, I'm, I'm pushing here a little bit because we're in this political season and all sorts of craziness is happening in our world right now. It's the 15th anniversary of 9-11. I mean, we've got all of this on our cultural plate. I'm pushing a little bit to say this. The people of God don't pray for um, rulers and authorities, those that, that, that are um, over us in society. They don't pray so that we will get our way. That, that's not really the thing at all. The point is not to get your way. Whether you agree with them or disagree with them is of really no concern. We pray so that we would, as he says here in verse uh, at the end of verse 2, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We pray that the government wouldn't get in the way of the gospel going forward. That's why we pray. Well, that's kind of cynical, isn't it? No, listen. Here's the thing. When we, when we stand and we champion things like religious liberty... As, a, as Baptists, this is kind of our, one of the big hallmarks of who we are. You know, we believe in the freedom of the conscience and, and, and uh, people to live and worship as they please in, in, in secular society. So when we stand and we, we say, hey, listen, government needs to not be involved in that stuff. Just let people do the thing. What we're saying is government doesn't have the solution to the problems that we have. So 
It's not a matter of outlawing building this mosque or building that Buddhist temple or building that Baptist church. It's a matter of saying, man, the world needs something, and it's not new law. It's the gospel. That's what we need. We pray for secular authorities so that we can live peaceful and godly lives, peaceful and quiet lives, godly um, and dignified in every way. We pray that it wouldn't get in the way. You know, the church, the church struggles in one particular setting, and that's with prosperity. You know the two settings in which it flourishes? Persecution and pluralism. Sure. It thrives even under persecution and pluralism, but it struggles with prosperity. We're praying that the government, this is why we pray, the government wouldn't get in the way of the gospel going forward. Jesus can hold his own. Do you believe that? He can hold his own. He's not worried about the other stuff. Like, he's got all that. So we're just praying that they wouldn't get in the way of the gospel going forward. That, that's why we pray. That's why we pray. That's why Paul exhorts Timothy to pray, and specifically to pray for Nero. Um, it came up, I say this because it came up early, I think fairly early in uh, President Obama's administration, maybe even in his first term, showed up on Facebook and email, and half the people meant it as a joke, half the people were like, ah, just kidding, not. Um, Psalm 109 uh, you know, this is how I'm praying for my president. Uh, Psalm 109 came along, said something along the lines of, may his wife, uh, may his days be few, may another take his office. Included in that is, may his wife be a widow and his children be fatherless. Listen, uh, I don't think Jesus was happy about that. I just got to be clear about this. Like, that's not how we pray. We're praying that the government wouldn't get in the way because who has the answers to society's ills? Not the government. Jesus does. We just want them to create the kind of environment, peaceful, excuse me, peaceful, dignified, godly, quiet, this kind of thing so that the gospel can go forth. This is why we do this. So the, he says, when we do this, this is good. This is good. In verse 3, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior because it creates this kind of environment where the gospel um, can move forward. So, two, first two phrases, we offer all kinds of prayer. Second phrase, we offer all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. Thirdly, and this is where we've been driving, we offer all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people so we can proclaim the gospel. That's why we do this. We offer all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people so we can proclaim the gospel, starting in verse 4. Uh, let's back up to verse 3. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? Just like all before, all here, all kinds of people. So just to be clear, there should not be a person in your world a kind of person, a particular version of sinner. There should not be a person in your world Without, uh, um, that you would not share the gospel with. Now, they may look different than you. They may be pierced in different places than you. They may be inked up in a different way than you are. They may have different baggage than you. They may have different skin tone than you. They may have different past than you. They may have different uh, whatever than you. There should not be a person. Because we offer all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people to proclaim the gospel, there should not be a person in a kind of person in our world, in my world, that I wouldn't share the gospel with. I say that because in our day, 
It can get pretty easy to shove people, oh, they're just always going to be like that. Listen, we're always all going to be like that. We all are always going to be like that unless Jesus intervenes in our life. And how does he intervene in our lives? He intervenes. God desires to save all kinds of people. So we share the gospel then without prejudice and without presumption. Salvation happens when proclamation happens. Paul talks about this in Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. How will they hear if they don't have a preacher? How will they have a preacher if somebody's not sent out? And so forth. We get the opportunity to be proclaimers, and God brings salvation to people. God desires to save all kinds of people, and he saves them through the gospel. So he says, save, uh, desires all people to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. What's the truth? The truth is this. Jesus came, and he lived perfectly. And Jesus came, and he not only lived perfectly, but he died sacrificially. He lived perfectly. He died sacrificially. He rose bodily. And one day, thank God, he's going to come back victoriously and fix all this mess. That's what we're holding on to right there. Lived perfectly, died sacrificially, rose, victorious, rose bodily, and is returning victoriously. Let's hang on to that. That's the knowledge of the truth. And when our response to that truth is faith, God says, yes, you're my people. Come follow me. I want to be in your world and be a part of this. So respond. Call, come to me. Call out to me and respond. And maybe some of you are here this morning. You've never heard that before, that Jesus is in the business of rescuing people. He's in the business of dying sacrificially for people. He's in the business of giving people new life. I want you, I want you to hear me say this morning, that's exactly the business he's in. That's exactly the business he's in. And our best response is, to, is a response of faith. So God desires to save all kinds of people, and he saves them through the gospel. He outlines a few more important thoughts about this. Verse 5, for there is one God. Let's start there. How many gods? One God. He says this in a highly pluralistic society. Uh, ancient uh, Roman Empire, you had all sorts of gods and all sorts of deities, all sorts of altars, all sorts of idols, all sorts of stuff going on. In our world, we do too. We do too. The primary uh, thing, if you will, person, if you will, that we deify is me. We deify ourselves, right? That, that's kind of, but there are other deities that we worship. About noon or so, we're going to see some deities and if you think that's not worship, we deify athletes, we deify celebrities, we deify people that we wish that we were like, we deify all sorts of people, but the primary person we deify is myself. That's who we deify. So it's, it's not much different. So for Paul to come along and the gospel to come along and say, there's one God, and by the way, you're not him, for that, that is controversial then. It will always be countercultural now. Um, it's just, and the more pluralistic we get in our society, the more that message is going to stand out. There is one God. Again, particularly poignant for Paul to state this, there is only one God, because... Um, it's a statement, if you will, at the emperor. I mean, he's, he's taking a shot at this. This is an inscription found um, in Asia Minor, which is where Ephesus, um, where Timothy's the pastor. Um, this is an inscription found on a government building, sending Caesar um, as a savior, both for us and our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. Since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news. Anybody want to guess what word is good news right there? 
gospel was the beginning of the gospel for the world. Now, that's on the side of a government building in 6 BC. Now, let's you and I read it, but read it with Jesus. In sending Jesus as a Savior, both for us and our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. Since the birthday of Jesus was the beginning of the gospel for the world. Now, that makes sense to you and me, right? But this is not that. This is talking about Caesar on the side of a government building. And so for Paul to come along and say, um, hey, there's a different kingdom. It's not the Roman Empire. There's a different king. It's not Caesar. There's a different gospel. It's not that he was born. It's that there's a whole different thing going on here. There's a whole different play being made. That's pretty countercultural, isn't it? And guess what? It will continue to be in our world. There is one God, one God. And then he says, one mediator between God and man. In other words, Jesus stepped into, the, the because we were so distant, and because uh, that, that distance could not be covered by us, Jesus stepped in to that distance right there, and he mediates between God and man. Ultimately, at the cross, one time for all time, made the sacrifice, but even today, even in this moment, and I love the present tense word right here, there is, not was, there is one mediator between God and man, because not only did he die on the cross as the mediator between me and God when I was still in my sin, but now, even in this moment, right now, according to Hebrews chapter 7, he is praying for us. He's mediating. He's right between me and the Father, going, God, boy, he needs some help today. Help him. There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and man. And then the, this last powerful countercultural um, um, statement, and he gave his life. Who? Verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all. You and I were dead in our sins. Jesus stepped into our place. He died the death that we should have died. He gave his life as a sacrifice, as a substitute for you and for me. When you and I couldn't do anything to help ourselves, Jesus stepped in and said, I am the one who's your help. When you and I were beyond the pale, Jesus stepped in with his long arm and grabbed a hold of us and brought us to God. This is how it works. Jesus gave his life as a ransom. He paid the debt that you and I deserve to pay. And again, that's a highly exclusive, highly countercultural claim. The problem pluralism has with the gospel is that it says there's only one way. Here's the deal, though. This is a beautiful thing. As exclusive as the gospel may sound, the good news is it's so inclusive because anybody with any past and any problems and any sin can step into that and receive forgiveness from him. When they come to him in faith, he doesn't cast them out. He doesn't punt them away. He's saying, hey, man, I've been drawing you and drawing you, and you come to me in faith, and I'm going to forgive your sin and give you new life. Last thing about this. He saves all kinds of people through the gospel. We offer all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people so we can proclaim the gospel. And you and I, you and I are sent out as ambassadors. That is authorized um, appointed people to share his news, share the good news that Jesus has um, died for our sin and has come back from the dead and is reigning victoriously. Uh, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5. You and I are ambassadors. We are sent out. We are sent out. Um, and, and intentionally so with this message. So he says in verse 7, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Listen, it's not just Paul who was sent out. You and I are ambassadors too. 
We talk about it around here as a church, this little um, pictorial representation of what we're encouraging people to and pushing people to and saying, this is what, this is the program we kind of need to get on. We've got this base level, if you will, expectation that we have a culture of invitation. This thing where everybody gets an opportunity during the week. It takes five seconds just to invite people to church. God, you know, hey, do you go to church anywhere regularly? No, I really don't. Come on over, man. We'd love to have you sometime. Just a very quick interaction. When we get into those conversations, something amazing happens. Um, After we invite people to church, if we get any chance at all to have a, a, a brief conversation with them, we often get a chance to tell our story. Some people talk about telling their testimony, giving their testimony, how God has worked in our lives, how God has changed people, uh, how God has changed me, how he's provided for me, how he's taken care of me, how he's had mercy on me, whatever. We get a chance to tell our story, how he's rescued me. And then ultimately and finally, because it's not inviting people to church or telling our story that changes people's lives, it's that we get the opportunity to share the gospel. We get the opportunity to tell that Jesus has done this for us, and he will do this for you too. Man, we want to see people changed. We want to see people transformed. What better way than for you and I to participate in that right there? Now, here's the deal. I can't, I can't preach on praying about these kind of things, and let's not take a minute and actually do this. And so this last little graphic is going to come up, and we're going to end this sermon with prayer. When we talk about as a church, we exist to do three things. Proclaim the kingdom, connect people with God, and teach to transform those people into apprentices. This is that first piece, proclaiming the kingdom, that very first thing. And so here are just some some prompts, if you will. You don't have to touch any of those. But if your eyes land on one and you're like, yep, that's it. Bolivia, I just... Dollar church, we as a church are engaged there. And I'm just, man, I want to pray for that, right? Like my heart just goes there. I've got lost family members. I, you know, we, we've got these people within what we call, you know, affectionately called the 4B area from the Beltway to the beach, uh, from the Bay to Brazoria County. This 500 plus thousand people and so many lost people in here. We've got to do something about it. We've got to pray about that. So here's what we're going to do. I just want you to find one of them. Just let your eyes land on one of them. And then we're going to take a minute and pray. You find yours? You know which one? Okay, let's bow our heads and pray. You can pray there. If you came along with somebody, maybe you grab their hand and you can pray with him or her. And then I'll close this in just a moment. All kinds of prayer for all kinds of people so that we can proclaim the gospel.